It is so good to see you, and welcome fall. Fall is here. I'm kind of excited about it. Um, I've had a really busy summer. Thank you, Carlos. I've had a really busy summer um, speaking on the weekends. I speak at my home church in Bend and, and then at uh, other churches. And so the nature of speaking at lots of other churches is you land in the middle of whatever teaching series they're doing at the time. So this summer I've spoken on uh, Intro to Romans, on Daniel 9, on the Beatitudes, on Hagar, on Jesus in the Wilderness, just all kinds of things. And um, so I love being a friend of Evergreen because it means that I got to text my friend, Pastor Ann, and say, hey, on September 12th, I've got a message brewing that's super personal. I don't know where else I'm going to speak. Could I, could I unleash it on your unsuspecting congregation? Could I do that? And she kindly said yes. So this is that. Ready? <laughs> um, I... Also, in the fall, it's like the change of seasons gets me kind of reflective, but it's also my birthday a week from tomorrow, and so I always find myself very introspective at this time of year and kind of looking at my life and, and what's the summation, and that's where this message is birthed. And um, so in 1986, my husband and I had been married for one year, and we were poor college students. And we lived in a terrible little apartment in a terrible part of the city. And we were pretty dismal with our finances as well. We sound like a real success story, don't we? Um, and uh, so a friend of ours who is good at money came to us and he said, I have got a foolproof investment for you. You have got to invest $1,000 and it's going to change your life. I mean, it could probably become like $100,000. And we were initially intrigued, but also just like, there's no way. We don't have a thousand dollars. There's no way. And he said, well, do you have a car? And we were like, yeah, we have a 1977 Chevy Nova. That's cool. And he said, is it worth a thousand dollars? And we're like, well, I don't know. Sell your car and take the bus for a year and invest money in this foolproof investment. And I am just telling you right now, there is no way that I nor Steve Stern was going to ride the city bus for a year and let go of $1,000 and a beautiful automobile. <laughs> there was no way. We just were very much immediate gratification kinds of people. So we didn't invest in Microsoft. And uh, March 1986, it went public. And had we invested that $1,000, anyone want to take a crack at how much it would be worth? $3.69 million today. I take a lot of solace in the fact that we probably would have sold when we hit two grand. We doubled our money. This is amazing. <laughs> because we could have had it right then to buy like Slurpees with and stuff. So I didn't make the investment. And I've never really been great at letting go, letting go of money now in order to make money in the future. But I have had a sense of that idea in my life with my relationships what we invest now goes on into the future. And I have had a real sense of that. And it's not because of me. It's because of my father and my grandfather who always understood what's happening here is rolling and rippling out into places we cannot see. And so my dad used to always tell me that my grandfather, Mel, was someone who always wanted more of God, and he was willing to do anything. He was willing to travel 
hundreds of miles to go to a conference or chase down a prophet or whatever it took my grandfather was willing to do. He was willing, in fact, at my age, at the age of 56, to pack up he and his wife and move to the mission field for the rest of his life. He was after God, and he had an understanding that he was building for the future. And my father and my mother are the same way, and I am the recipient of that great heritage. But what I find is that the kingdom of God is like floors on a building. And my grandfather Mel was in my family building the ground floor for us. And my father and mother are still building the next floor. And by the way, when my mom or dad dies, I will tell you they spent their whole life wanting more of God. And I and my husband are working on the next floor. And our ceiling is the floor that our children are standing on, Tess and Josiah and Whitney and seven more. <laughs> I hope we built a good ceiling. <laughs> uh, lest it crash in on us. And then the next floor is Grayson and Phineas and Seth and Lena and whatever grandchildren follow after them. And so our goal in life is not just to leave a good building. Our goal is to leave good builders. And in that, I've been asking myself, how? How do we do it? I mean, because I think we, we would probably all agree that the next, what's coming after us, whether we are married or have kids or not, what we leave behind really matters. What outlasts us really matters. But how? How do we measure what the work that we're doing? How do we decide what we're doing? And what is the metric through which we put all of that? If you take a minute and just picture your building, who built before you? Who handed you a hammer? Who taught you how to be a good builder? Because hammers are good for both things. They can build up, but they can also tear down. So who taught you how to do that? And who are you teaching? Who are you leaving? What are you leaving behind for the people who are deciding what they believe about what it means to be a builder in their world? If we believe the future matters, or if we don't believe the future matters, we can live however we want. We can spend all the money now on Slurpees. But if we believe the future really matters, we've got to change our behavior now. And so when I understand that my floor is part of the whole building, then I have to build like Jesus. Which, wow, kind of sounds like a lot, right? And I wish I had a scripture for you on this. I really don't. I could just tell you that all through the word of God we see this principle. All through it. It's woven in all the pages. When you start to look for it, you'll see it everywhere. You'll see it even in just, I mean, you see it when Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is, so store up for what's coming. You'll see it in, in lots of places, but we see it even in the fact that God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just the God of one generation. He's the God of many. And so if we're looking at that, how do we do it? How do we measure? Here's my, for my money, and this is just, this is only my opinion. This is not doctrine. But my, for my money, the way we measure is by love, pain, and shame. Three substances, three things in our world where we can measure what we did with the love we gave and received, with the pain we gave and received, and with the shame we gave and received. That, to me, is where it all boils down. Just those three things. Turns out I'm not going to measure my life by books I wrote or sermons I preached or stages I stood on. I'm not going to measure my life by homes I built or money I saved or Microsoft stock I didn't buy. Thank goodness. 
I'm not going to measure my life by Instagram followers or notoriety or any of those things. I'm going to measure my life by what I did with love, what I did with pain, and what I did with shame. Um, Love is a big deal. <laughs> That's the profound understatement of the year. It, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is, we could say it in our sleep. It's become so punch drunk in the church to talk about loving God and loving people. I speak in lots of churches, and everybody pretty much has the same motto. This is, what we, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. What do we do with that love? Have we said it so much, the word love, that we've lost its potency in our lives? I said yesterday, I love this salad. This salad is changing my life, I said. Maybe I've forgotten that love is the most powerful force in the universe. It is so strong that Paul writes all of these details about love and he sums it up with the only thing I think he can think of to sum up love when he says love never fails. It is foolproof, bulletproof, stock market proof, pandemic proof. Love never fails. It is powerful. I've been sort of immersed in First John uh, in the last week, and I, I recommend it. It'll mess you up. It's a lot. It's a lot about really subversive love. <clears throat> and I could just with this idea, again, that love is strong. Bitterness is strong, but love is stronger. Hate is strong. Love is stronger. Injustice is strong. Love is stronger. It's strong. And so John says this, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Oh, that's how we know. We know we've become true followers of Jesus Christ. We know we're living inside the resurrection life that he promised when we say the words, when we commit our lives, when we join a church, when we vote the right way, when we do whatever. Nope. We know we have passed from death to life when we love each other. And then he says, anyone who does not love remains in death. Eugene Peterson in the message translates it, anyone who does not love is as good as dead. Because love is the animating force of the universe. Um, <clears throat> so what does love look like? Doesn't look like loving a salad, turns out. Looks like this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and see, sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Love is active or it's nothing. Love is substantive. It does something. So who are we called to love? God, yes, but I think three groups of people. Because John has already told us the metric for how we love God is how we love each other. That's how we know. So who are we called to love? I believe we're called to love 
the people in our circle, the people we would happily take a bullet for, the people we've been given, our spouse, our children, our family, our parents, all the people that we love so much. We're called to love them. We're called to love the people who have the power to hurt us. And we're called to love the people who have no power to help us. We're called to love our friends, our enemies, and the least of these. And it, again, all through the Bible, you love your friends, you love your enemies, you love the least of these. Um, when we talk about loving your enemies, Matthew 5, 43, really clear. Love those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Bless them. Um, Matthew 25, 40, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done for me. What if my relationship with God and my love for him is not measured by the number of quiet times I've shown up for? What if it's not measured by my church attendance or my tithe? What if it's not actually measured by if I did the read the Bible through the year, including Leviticus? What if it's not measured by that? What if it's measured by what I've done for the least, for the people who have no power to help me, no power to advance my cause? The way we love our friends, the way we love our enemies, and the way we love the least. And then what do we do with pain? What do we do with the pain that we give and the pain we receive? Because here's the thing. A pain-free life is not a possibility. It's not in the cards for you, and I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that. Whether or not you love the Jesus of the cross, pain is going to come. It's, it's interesting to me how we, we have at the centerpiece of our faith the cross of crucifixion, and yet we somehow have bought this subversive sort of weird idea that, that when we sign up, the goal of God will be to keep us from all pain. You know how I know we believe that? Because all the people who sit across my desk and say to me, I'm going through this thing, how could he? Where is God? And my answer is always the same 100% of the time, right there, right in the middle of your pain. He's right there. Uh, We serve the God who is able to do amazing things with the ingredient that is pain. He is able to, to use it to form his heart in us. Listen to 1 Peter 4. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of God. See that? Rejoice in the measure with which you participate in his sufferings. As much as you suffer, that's how much you get to rejoice. Rejoice as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. He is up to something in the painful parts of your life. He is up to something. He is working. That does not make the pain go away. In fact, from my experience, it doesn't even make it feel a whole lot better. But it does enable me to run toward it instead of away from it. Because when I run away from my pain, the very next thing that can happen is I have to start hiding it away or excusing it or putting it somewhere in a shelf where it doesn't get in my way, and that creates shame. And so pain can be our friend if we're willing to deal with it. How do we deal with the pain that we receive, the pain that we give? Uh, I love this scripture in James. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So confession is one of the lost arts of the church, and it is a tragedy. 
we have stopped making confession a regular practice in our faith. I think that when we stop confessing to one another, we also eventually stop confessing to God. We stop being honest with him. And I find the more honest I am with him and the more I find how much he loves me anyway, the easier it is to be honest with you. I don't have to worry so much about what you think because I have already dealt with the shame of it in front of God. And so confession, confess your sins, confess the ways that um, you have created pain in the lives of others. I think it's such a big, big and important thing. I uh, was dealing with a situation in my life and someone had caused pain and I was frustrated with it and I was driving from Bend to Portland and it's a three-hour trip and so I was just kind of mulling it over with the Holy Spirit and saying, what is going on here and what do I do with this? pain and and I was thinking about this exact thing that I'm teaching this morning pain shame and the the love we give and receive the pain we give and receive the shame we give and receive and I thought about this person they're really going to have to do some business with the pain they give and I felt the Holy Spirit just really kindly say hey sister maybe turn that flashlight inward maybe look a little bit at your own life this way and so I started looking at my relationship with my kids and it was scary. And I said, okay, God, I want you to just show me any places where I caused pain in the life of my kid, where I left a mark, my words, my distraction, my inactivity in their life, my judgment, what, whatever. I'm open. I want to know. And it, with all of my kids, except for one, he showed me some things where I, and I can promise you before God, I didn't mean to cause pain. I didn't mean to. But it just happens. This is life, and we hurt each other. And pain is okay as long as we deal with it. And so I made an appointment with each of my kids, and I sat down with them, each one individually, and I said, here are some things that I'm aware of that I have caused, places where I've caused pain in your life. I'm not going to justify it. I'm not going to explain it except to say, I need you to know I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to hurt you. And then I just want to be able to leave space here for us to sit here. I will own the pain and you, whatever you need me to do to heal this in your life and to keep it from moving any direction the enemy would want to move it. What can I do? to take ownership of the pain that I've caused. And it's so hard, you guys, because there's lots of places where I'm like, but my husband was dying. I was going through a lot. I was trying to process. I was trying to be a good mom. I meant to do, I did a lot better than a lot of other moms. I mean, there's all kinds of places where I wanted, my flesh just wanted to rise up and be like, yes, I know I did, but also look at the good part of Bo. Nope. It was just only here's the pain. You know what? There are real significant areas where my kids have caused me pain. This wasn't about that. This was all about I know who I am and I know that I own some of this. And it has changed my relationships with them. It has been the most powerful thing. In fact, my son wrote a college paper on that conversation and the power of it in his life. So it is, this is a black eye to the enemy. When we do this, it is subversive. He wants to say, you cause pain, you're a failure, that's shame, hide it. 
But Jesus says, confess your sins to one another so you can be healed. Healing. That's what we want. We want to go from death to life. Shame causes death, always. And confession is supernaturally powerful. The pain we receive, we can ask Jesus, please transform this into something that forms your heart in me. Make me more compassionate. Make me more caring. Make me more uh, generous. Make me more aware. Make me more of what you want me to be. I'm going to run toward it, and I'm going to become more like you in this. Understanding it might not make the pain go away. It's going to give it some purpose, and it's going to smack the enemy in the face, and that's worth it. The pain we give, we got to confess. we got to say, okay. And there may not be a person to confess it to. That's okay. Sit down with Jesus. Sit down with a counselor. I need to confess some things in order to be healed. Just first start there and then let the Holy Spirit tell you what the next step is. Shame. Ugh. It's, it's so nasty. It's so insidious. It is relational poison and emotional prison. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. Shame makes you want to hide. Guilt might, might point us to healthy change, but shame always destroys. So I believe that the Apostle John is talking about shame when he writes this. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Doesn't that sound like a good life to live? If our hearts condemn us, We know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So do you see how all these pieces are interlocking together? When we feel shame, our hearts condemn us. They tell us we're unworthy, and that keeps us from having confidence before God, and that keeps us from walking his way. It keeps us from loving others courageously and unapologetically. Shame is the blocker of all forward motion. So my husband and I recently had a conversation, a conversation. Um, it was really, went a little off the rails. It started as, here, here's something you did that caused me pain, which I think is great in marriage. You need to have those conversations. Pain cannot destroy relationships. Shame destroys relationships. So we had the conversation, but it went sideways. It was late at night, so we shelved it. We said, we're going to take a look at this in the light of day. I know, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. That particular hasn't worked for me. So sometimes we just need a break. So in the morning, I got up early with my Bible and my journal, and I sat on my couch, and I wrote out the whole conversation that we had. And I just looked at every place where I felt I had caused pain, And then I looked at every place where I knew my words had taken a swerve at him and caused shame. And then I looked at all the places where his words made me cause some pain. And then I looked at all the places where his words made me feel shame, like made me feel like folding in on myself. And I can tell you, we did not mean to. We are newlyweds. We are stupid in love. We did not mean to cause shame, but we did. And in the pattern of the things that caused shame in me through his words, I saw an overwhelming fear of being wrong inside of myself. It's like an irrational fear makes me want to, honestly, it makes me want to throw up when I think that I've done something wrong or said something wrong. It is not, and that can sound like noble, it isn't. 
It's like it's bad. And it makes me, because I'm so afraid of it, it makes me push back with words that get the other person on the other side of me. And so I asked the Holy Spirit, what is happening here? I can see that this is pointing to a soul sickness. This is pointing to something bad in my life. What is going on? And I felt the Holy Spirit immediately, like it just happened in my mind immediately, take me to a moment in first grade. And uh, my first grade teacher was also my father's first grade teacher. She was old and really grumpy. And she was easily annoyed, I remember. And there was one kid in our class that she was particularly annoyed with. And she would regularly call him up in front of the class and spank him in front of us. I know, can you even imagine today? And um, I remember feeling like I could taste his shame. I felt undone by his humiliation. And in that moment, there was a mark on my soul of shame that I didn't even own. It wasn't even my shame. But it was a mark that was there, and it keeps me living in this self-protective way that keeps other people on the other side, and it's kill or be killed in that moment. And in that fight with my husband, that discussion with my husband, where I wasn't trying to cause shame, I was just trying to be right. <laughs> In that moment, I could see that six-year-old Bo was calling the shots for 56-year-old Bo. And I just said, Holy Spirit, would you come in and would you wrap up six-year-old Bo and let her know that she's okay and he's okay and you're still the God of the universe? Because... Without some healing in that moment, I'm going to either become the kid who hides in the back of the class and keeps other people on the other side of my words, or I'm going to become the grumpy teacher who causes shame in order to not be ashamed. And so I want to invite him into these areas that are repeated patterns in my life of shame. It's like a message, and you know it in your own life, a message that keeps coming back to you. I recently kept getting these texts on my phone, like, do you want to buy a Roomba? I'd be like, no, I do not. Do you want to buy an air conditioner unit? No, I do not. Do you want to buy a weight loss drug? Well, maybe, nope, 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 no, I do not. And it kept happening. I told my husband to keep getting so many junk texts. And he goes, well, somewhere you opted into something. And so, now, and so I was, like, so frustrated. I was like, I'm just opted in. I'm going to get these texts every day for the rest of my life, and it's going to drive me mad. And then one day I tried a crazy thing because I, I had done it somewhere else. So I was like, I'm just going to try it. You know what I did? I wrote, stop. And I immediately get a text back, you've been unsubscribed from this list. Okay, so shame. Somewhere we opt in. Somewhere it becomes a part of the decode, the default setting in our mechanism. And these messages just keep coming, coming, coming. You are a failure. You'll always be a failure. You were once used for sex. You'll always be used for that. You are unworthy, un, uh, you'll always be unworthy. And the texts just keep coming here like, this is annoying, no, delete. This is annoying, no, delete. How about try, stop. I maybe once gave you permission to tell me who I am, but I am revoking that permission 
And I am taking back the identity of Jesus Christ in my life because my shame is killing me and it will kill other people too. And my legacy is decided by what I do with the love I give and receive and the pain I give and receive and the shame I give and receive. 1 John 3 says this, My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living, truly living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism. Even when there is something to it. Ah, even when you are a screw-up. You can shut down debilitating self-criticism. You can write, stop. Um, even when there's something to it, for God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. For whatever crazy reason, you guys, he believes in you. For whatever crazy reason, he believes that you have the capacity to love your world in such a subversive way that something is tipped over by it. And if there's anything I think the enemy wants to stop, it's our ability to love. This isn't a perfect science. This is a spiritual practice. This is not doctrine. This is just a great idea to always say, I'm going to examine my life. I'm going to look at what's going here. It's okay to stumble your way into this. It's okay to ask people closest to you questions like, is there any way I've caused pain in your life? My son regularly will take one of it. He was raised by a house full of bossy women three sisters and me, and he regularly will take us out to lunch and say this question, is there any way I could love you better? And that's a great question, and it might raise up some things, some places where you've caused some pain. And, but it's a great question. Ask, are there ways I could love you better? Ask, have I caused any pain in your life? If that sounds too scary, that's okay, don't do it. Just start with Jesus in your journal. Start with Jesus and ask him some questions. Like, here's a couple of them. How am I doing with the love I give? I have a great capacity for love. How's my output? How am I doing at receiving love? That's a big deal. How am I doing at loving my friends, my enemies, and the least? Is there any pain living in my life that is not currently serving a purpose? Put that pain to work. Get it going. Pain is a workhorse. Is there pain I have caused or received that has not been confessed, forgiven, or healed? Are there any areas where shame is creating emotional or relational fallout? Is there a tender place in my past that you want to visit and heal? Every question you answer honestly and every move you make to love well in your world is an investment in what you are building. It's an investment in what you will leave behind. Every time you ask these questions and honestly let the Holy Spirit give you some answers or honestly let another human give you some answers, you are saying, I am going to build something. I'm going to leave behind a building and I'm going to leave behind builders who have experienced what it means to truly confess their sins, take ownership of them, deal with pain and shame, and love in a way that costs something. So Jesus, <clears throat> we love you.
And in loving you, we want to love each other well. And in loving you, we want to build well. And in loving you, we want to give well. And in loving you, we want to go from death to life by the way that we love one another. Would you reveal for us the places that are hiding or sick? Would you show us your mercy in the land of the living? And would you lead us forward into lives that build a lasting legacy here on planet Earth where we're desperate for life? In your name we pray, amen.